Hey, Eugene. Hello, Marilyn. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm excited about this episode of CTE Podcast because it's a little different. You want to tell us why? Yeah, it is a little bit different. So rather than interviewing directly our podcast guest, we actually have invited Gwen Pham, who is faculty here at USF, to tell us about a conversation that she had with one of her former professors and mentors. And Gwen is here. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the conversation that you had? Hi, so I am in the International Studies Department, and this is a wonderful series, this podcast series that Marilyn and Eugene started. I remember I was thinking that in addition to learning from our wonderful colleagues at USF, we all are often also shaped by teachers and friends in our prior school experience, and it would be great if we can also, you know, involve our mentors and teachers. And so this is how the idea came up, that I could have a conversation with one of my professors at Vassar College who really opened me up to the experience of teaching and learning in a way that I really haven't thought about before. And so that's where the conversation came in. We do have an admission here from CTE that Quinn recorded her conversation with Andrew Davison back in October of 2020, which was a while ago now. Um, We were sort of more thoroughly in the thick of the pandemic But the pandemic hasn't wrapped up entirely yet. And I think a number of the topics that you discussed, Quinn, are relevant and ongoing. And I'm really looking forward to listening in on your conversation with Andy about teaching as conversation. So let's take a listen. It is a great pleasure for me to be talking with Professor Andrew Davison today about teaching and learning. Andy is in the Department of Political Science at Vassar College. He's also affiliated with International Studies and Asian Studies. Hi, Andy. Hi, Quinn. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm good, too. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me to your conversation. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, I'm really excited about this. And why don't you first introduce yourself and say a few words about what you teach at Vassar? Well, thanks again for having me. Uh, I teach in the Department of Political Science at Vassar College. I've been here for just over 20 years. I teach courses mainly in political theory. Sometimes I teach courses in comparative politics related to my uh, hermeneutical work on the politics of Turkey. And my teaching usually includes courses like Introduction to Political Theory, a philosophy of social science course entitled Interpreting Politics, And every year I teach a seminar in political theory, which changes from semester to semester. This semester I'm teaching it, and the title is Releasing Poetic Attunement into Serious Political Inquiry. Wow, what an incredible title. So you've been teaching for many years. You've been at VASA, I think, since 1996. I know you are a teacher who cares deeply about pedagogy, and you're also someone who reflects continually on um, your teaching practices. So what would you say is at the heart of your approach to teaching? Well, thank you for the question. Probably caring is at the heart of the approach to teaching. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that concept as part of the question. I think what I do is approach students in the classroom as interlocutors Mm -hmm. with insights about the material based on their experience and their prior studies. Mm -hmm. And I try to find ways to put their ideas and thoughts and feelings and responses to the material at play. I've been doing that for many years in many different ways. The last 
15 years or so, the most effective way I've found to make that happen is by not using grades and not entering into a graded relationship with my students, not invoking grades and not invoking the logic of the grade. And so, well, let me first say that I teach at an institution, a grading institution. Mm -hmm. And that means the grade is in the air, it's in the room, it's in the practice. Mm -hmm. And my feeling is that grades are efficiency devices in some ways. And rarely, rarely is the precise rationale for the grade conveyed to the students as part of the grade. By which I mean to say, you know, why it's minus three as opposed to minus four, mm. why it's minus eight as opposed to minus 11, mm. or why this or that. A lot of implicit communication occurs, not a lot of explicit communication. And as long as the grade is there, it is the main focus of the exchange. You know, we know the stories that students, you know, they, they get their papers back, they look at the grade, and, and then they read the comments. And the comments are often justifications for the grade which is to say that they take a difference between what's in the student's performative expressed work as a chance for either complimenting or criticizing them based on its kind of scale. So that's the logic. That's the relationship. Again, there are many ways of doing it and nuancing it. And I was once a grader. I, I never had a non-grade exposure. I had a lifetime experience of trying to move the grade out of view because for me, the, the focus on the substantive exchange was most important. But I could see that the way that the grade was a form of distraction. And as long as the grades are in the room, lots of things are happening that I find to be constraints on the conversation. And by that, I mean something like, as long as the grade is in the room, there's an implicit hierarchicalization in the room, mm -hmm. an implicit ranking taking place. As long as the grade is in the room, students are frequently trying to align their thoughts with the ideas that they understand to be the expectations of the professors. And I think it's important to note that most of the courses I teach are in political theory. And rarely are there single right or wrong answers. Mm -hmm. uh, the texts are always very challenging texts, and they're open to many interpretations. Mm -hmm. And so a non-graded approach to engagement, again, which entails treating differences as chances for more learning conversation, has been really fruitful. Not, and, not, and not a graded moment, right? But by that I mean not invoking a mythological 100-point scale as a tool for either compliment or critique. Mm -hmm. I tell the students I'll compliment them and I'll criticize them, mm -hmm. but I won't grade them. I won't let the relationship between us become a relationship based on the logic of the grade. And what I'm really trying to do with grades is a couple things. One is I'm trying to turn the relationship into a thoroughly substantive learning relationship, and I'm trying to expand the range of consideration. So, you know, when the grades aren't there, I have to demonstrate this thoroughly. Because every semester I'm working with a group of students, most of whom are the first time they're taking a class with me, and I have to show them that this is, this is really what I'm here for and this is what I'm about, which is to kind of engage in a substantive learning exchange with them around a certain subject matter for which they're responsible, for which I'm responsible. And my experience is that slowly but surely that opens things up. In my teaching experience, I have come to understand that there are things that students need to do on the way towards learning material that are conventionally regarded as mistakes or lacks or deficiencies. And I see those, I see those as sometimes necessary moments on the way to learning, kind of like riding a bicycle. Mm -hmm. Things you need to do in order to learn a material that would be conventionally regarded as a mistake or an error. I believe there is possibility in error and the possibility is for interesting conversation to occur. I'll frequently pause and I'll say, you know, anything here confuse you, you have questions here. When the grade is present, it's really hard for students to say, I'm confused about this. Yeah. Can, you, can you do that again? And, and by the way, I see a confusion as an insight Mm -hmm. Scholars are confused by materials. 
scholars have questions that, you know, that we end up writing about questions that we have answers to, to some extent, but we have all sorts of questions that we don't have answers to. And I'm trying to open up a space where we can kind of receive that, that idea that doesn't have such a chance in a graded space, and then to, to stay with it, follow it. Because my experience is those confusions are often shared. And if they're not shared, they're still important. As I say to the students, meet me where you are, and I'll meet you where I am. And if you need to make a mistake, or you need to say something that's conventionally regarded as a mistake, or that comes out of your mouth, I won't say, no, no, no. I'll say, thank you. Let's think about that. And let's think about it a little bit differently in this way. Or, or I hadn't thought of that. Let's develop it in some interesting way. But I think the most important thing is, to, is really to approach the students as interlocutors with whom you want to have a conversation and think hard about the material. So overall, I, I think of myself as devoting myself to thinking with my students and finding ways for them to think about the material with each other, with me, to think about the importance of the material, to think about the stakes of the material, to think about the meaningfulness of the material in the context of their lives. I invite, I encourage, I regard, I respond in those ways. And so that's how I think of the approach I take to pedagogy. Mm. Mm. Thank you very much for um, elaborating on that because a non-graded approach, I think, is still relatively uncommon. And I'm sure when listeners hear that, they would be more curious about um, what you mean by that. And also at USF, uh, there have been initiatives started by my colleagues who also want to really revisit this notion or this practice of grading. So, for example, um, the CTE, the center that uh, hosts this podcast, Center for Teaching Excellence at USF, um, they also hosted a reading circle on um, a book by Asao Inoue. Um, the book is called Labor-Based Grading Contracts, Building Equity and Inclusion in the Compassionate Writing Classroom. Um, so that was in the previous year. And then in this year, I also joined a faculty learning community facilitated by my colleague, Nicole, who want to examine the uh, impact of grading on students' learning. And when I listened to you just now, I noticed that when you emphasize what is conventionally called mistakes is part of learning, it really uh, shifts the conversation about the process of learning rather than, um, you know, the final result, which is, uh, you can call it getting it right, you can call it, you know, an accurate answer or other things, but but to really be in conversation with students in in the process of listening to each other is quite a different thing. The other thing that I noticed immediately is that you said that you don't want to enter a graded relationship with students. And I just want to ask a quick follow-up on that because um, the way that you put it, it really um, makes us think about the relationship involved, right? I mean, it's one thing to say that I don't grade. It's another thing to say I, I don't enter into a graded relationship with students. So have you felt that the grading changes the relation so much that it compels you to go this way? Well, thanks for that question. It's an interesting question. I, I think there are crucial ways of encouraging and inviting and supporting students to take a risk with the thought they wouldn't register, to register a question in a class that they might not ask, to express an uncertainty they may not share, to express a judgment they have that they may withhold. And I'm you know, kind of in this constant effort to 
you know, to open up the range of consideration. It applies to the classroom work, that applies to the written work, you know, exams, assignments, and so forth. I, I still give exams, I give quizzes, they're just ungraded, I give assignments, I ask students to work hard. But I also have a particular participation requirement. I don't think it's unique, but uh, I do know that it's not the most common understanding of participation. That is that I don't equate participation with speaking. <laughs> I think of speaking as one form of participation, uh, not the only way to participate, but there are other ways to participate, listening, comparing your thoughts with others, yielding the space for conversation. So I, I'm frequently saying to students that eager speakers, please be prepared to kind of <laughs> yield the space to others. Those of you who prefer to be quiet, please know that I, I will call on you at times, and I'm calling you not because I'm trying to put pressure on you. I'm trying to expand the range of our considerations because we know how you know the quick hand up keeps other hands down. The more eager speakers tend to be students with prior familiarity with the subject matter or the mode of instruction. And so all sorts of things are happening around the grade mm. that, that are, in my view, uh, constraining the possibilities for conversation. But in the discussion-based classes, if the goal of that is to enlarge the range of speaking, I can say that that's, that's not a, a goal of mine. My goal is to enlarge the range of consideration and to, to, to create a space where the thought that might tend to be silenced or quieted or excluded from the consideration has a chance, mm -hmm. has a chance to contribute to take the conversation somewhere else. I can't say it's perfect. There, there, there are problems and flaws in my approach. But I do think as someone who's interested in you know, in thinking and conversing and dwelling deeply with the students about the material and their responses to it, who sees dwelling with their responses as a way of learning the material, mm. you know, dropping the grade and entering a thoroughly conversational relationship with my students has been very fruitful and accounts for a lot of the success I have in the classroom. Mm. Thank you for that important note. I appreciate that you really highlight the inviting, bringing out uh, confusion, uncertainty, doubts, all these range of experiences with the text and with the conversations that might be silenced otherwise. And I was also thinking that the thought could be silenced also because maybe that thought has been expressed before or thoughts in that area have been expressed before, but then have been graded down or somehow not encouraged, uh, expressed through grading. And so there are so many different modes of silencing. And I think that's where the, the practice of grading is really tied to serious concerns about in, inequity in the classroom also. Yes. Um, the, uh, the idea that a student might say something that they understand has been stated already and is interesting, right? Uh, it's often the case that you know several students will have their hands up at one time, and you know one person will say something, and then you know we'll have that we'll converse about their ideas, and then I'll turn to another student. I, I will say, you know, what were you going to say? And they say, I was going to say the same thing. And I, I smile. I always yeah. smile inside. Inside, I smile. I don't necessarily smile yeah. at them. I think, I think that's kind of impossible. And even <laughs> if it's the same words, it's not the same curiosity. Right. So, right. so I try to find a way to, to encourage the person who thinks that something's already been stated and evaluated to say, you know, I will say something like, I appreciate that you might have had something similar to say, but I kind of wonder if you want to say it anyway, because it might have a little difference and we can tend to mm. and think about together. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was a wonderful reminder. For me, it wasn't just sort of a reminder that if somebody says, yeah, I had the same question or I had the same comment to just let that go, mm -hmm. but also to help me to realize that when somebody is asking a question, they're not asking or making a comment, 
I shouldn't assume that they're on the same wavelength with me. Mm, mm. So it's not just that the students are on different wavelengths, but that even if I say something or I ask a question and then invite a student to respond and they, they give a response, I think my bias is to frame it in terms of here's the right answer that I'm kind of looking for. And I will make it either fit into that or not fit into that and respond accordingly instead of saying like, oh, what could you be meaning by that? Instead Mm -hmm. of having this like ruler ready to go where it's like, no, no, no. Does anybody else have another thought? Which if I have to admit is what I do. Provocation. Thank you. So I've offered a provocation. Why should I be assuming that that my provocation is going to lead to a Yes, it fits into my framework or no, it does not fit into my framework. I should just be throwing that out and being like, what, what are you bringing? Yeah, you know, and, and this is connected to his deeply hermeneutical work in political theory and his deeply hermeneutical orientation. Because one of the questions that if you took a class with Andy, um, and I took a few, um, that you would never forget is that he always asks, what in your understanding is you know, so like what in your understanding is justice? What in your understanding is fairness? So, well, I shouldn't speak on his behalf, but I think that there's actually a very careful carving out space of foregrounding differences, different meanings, different interpretations. And then from conversations, then we will either go to a place of, is this a shared understanding or not? Yeah, I, th- I think that like Eugene, I know that there are moments where I try not to ask fishing questions where I'm fishing for the right answer. And a lot of what I teach doesn't have a right answer. But still, I think there are these deeply worn grooves and habits, right? And especially on days maybe that I'm feeling tired or, you know, um, frazzled or not quite as well prepared or I'm not in the zone, it's easy to fall back on that. And so even though I'm asking the questions and I'm inviting contributions, I do know that, like Eugene said, I will frame or reframe. And what really struck me as so powerful in what you and and Andy were talking about with this notion of of expanding the range of consideration and that this conversation was not only between him as a faculty member and the student he's engaging with, but then with other students and then the voices in the texts and the authors and the material that you're studying and that approach that starts, you said, you know, hermeneutically with where you are, what is your understanding now? And then um, sort of teasing that out and then growing and expanding those things in conversation with all of those voices, that was really powerful to me. Yeah, and I think, you know, what you just said is really connected back to the difference that he um, clarified in terms of expanding the range of consideration rather than expanding the range of speaking which can attending to the nuances of what is verbal, what is nonverbal, but also what is being said might really have multiple tones, multiple contexts of curiosities and interests, multiple meanings. So expanding the, the range of consideration is a lot more hospitable to all kinds of unexpected things that might come up from, from students. So I have a question. Mm-hmm. To what extent does this approach work in... Uh, when the subject matter that you're studying is not sort of like inquiry-based or exposure or introduction, but sort of skill development 
of a defined skill with certain guidelines that are already in place, right? So one of the things that Andy talked about, or I think I think you mentioned in your conversation with him, was that he's not seeking mastery. Mm-hmm. He, or he's not seeking a mastery for his students and he's like intro to political science courses. It's one of the reasons why he's able to sort of explore, like, are we going to read this person? Are we going to read this person? Are we going to read this person, right? But what if the learning objective is, I want by the end of this course for you to build a table that can work in the way that people who use tables expect them to work. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't wobble. It should be solid. Do we still have a place for the students to say, well, I was interpreting leg of the table to mean something different. Isn't it more sort of an aesthetic thing as opposed to a load-bearing thing? Can we do that? Or can we still adopt those kinds of principles? Is sort of a hermeneutical approach still something that is appropriate when we're talking about sort of a defined skill set? Yeah, I I think that it is an orientation more than subject specific for Andy and, and those who are interested in, in this pedagogical approach. So part of it requires reorienting, you know, and, and actually redefining learning goal or teaching goal. So the reason why I said that is that there are many people in his field, which is either political theory or political science, if you want to talk about discipline, most people would still teach with the objective that students need to master these texts, right? So this approach goes against the grain, even in in that field. And so at that level, it's really a, a reorientation of what the classroom space could be, what is the place for collaboration with students, for co-learning with students. But I also understand your question in terms of substantively, the subjects can really vary. And if, let's say, one of the defined objective is to build a skill, then there may be less space and time in the class to really explore completely open-endedly all the things that we have in front of us together. That being said, even if it's like a skill, like let's say language skill, or even like a computer skill, for example, I think having some part of the class connecting it to students' experience or student needs or student interests and curiosities, I think would still be pretty crucial in terms of having the space student-oriented and like co-learning. That's deep. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, you know, so um, so I was revisiting Bell Hook's book, Teaching to Transgress, and one of the very early pages in the book, she was talking about how excitement in the classroom is important for her both as a student and as a teacher, and that it's not just excitement about ideas, the excitement is also generated from people in the class really being interested in each other, really being responsive to each other. And she was also talking about how the teachers who inspire her are those who respond to students' unique being. And she was talking about this in the context of engaged pedagogy. And I thought that that is related to so much in this conversation also. That's why I said it's an orientation, even larger than, you know, something pedagogy specific, that if we attend to students, it's never the same class. Like you can teach the same film, you can teach the same book. It's never the same conversation and it's never the same class. And and students just surprise you with the most amazing interpretations. I think that's one of the most 
wonderful things about teaching. Yeah. What an amazing insight. Yeah. Let's go back to Quen's conversation with Andy. I want to ask you with this thoroughly conversational approach, with your attentiveness to your goal of wanting to expand the range of consideration, I wanted to ask if a lot has changed since the outbreak of the pandemic since last semester in terms of Zoom and virtual modality, but also uh, anything related to the pandemic that you want to speak about? So I find the remote teaching under the conditions of the pandemic to be a mixed experience. If we didn't have the pandemic and the, you know, death, disease, social justice struggles, and we were on remote, it would be a very different experience, <laughs> right? I think that the Zoom, it has all sorts of constraints and we have to really meet the uneven circumstances in which our students are Zooming in. Mm -hmm. And there's lots to say about that in terms of ways that we have to, you know, engage in conversation with the students about their learning circumstances and meet those somehow. Having said that, I, I have found that the Zoom experience enables certain kinds of intimacies that are not available in the classroom when you're all physically together. Mm -hmm. But we're not only living in remote conditions, we're living through very trying, stressful, demanding, taxing times on the psyches of everyone involved. We have to be very attentive to the challenges of our students. So I had an experience on Tuesday. I'll share it with you. It was, it was really remarkable for me. Mm. It's midterm here. And I've been talking with students about, you know, the workloads they have. And it seems that there's a kind of effort to produce a, a kind of normalcy on, at the college. Right. The students are, are working as hard as ever. And that's, that was uh, interesting and, and, let's say, disturbing to me. Because there have been real shifts, even at the level of, of the college, the calendar time. Uh, normally, Vassar has a, an October break. There's no October break this semester. And I had, anyway, on Tuesday, I had an assignment all ready to send out to the class. And I, and I, I stopped. I said, I, I can't quite do it. I'll add here that the day before, uh, I learned of, that some members of my extended family contracted the COVID virus. I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you. And I thought... You know, right. You know, you have you get these reminders now and then that these are not normal, that these are extraordinary and difficult times. And I paused in handing out the assignment and I opened up a conversation with the students about the responsibility I feel towards the stress that they may be experiencing in these extraordinary times. And so what I did was I invited everyone to write to me to begin an email in the class. I said, look, begin an email about, you know, share with me, if you will, this is optional, but would you please share with me something about the circumstances you're facing? I describe them as the psychic, intellectual, cognitive, and emotional circumstances you're facing with regard to your learning. And I, I restated the prior announced expectations of the class, and if they had any thoughts about how those might relate to their circumstances, it may possibly modify. You know, I invite, invited them to, to share with me their thoughts, and, and I shared with them my own. And I said, Everything you say to me will be fully confidential. I said, I won't even talk about it with you if, unless you want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to know where you are because I, 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 I need to think about how to proceed under these circumstances. Mm -hmm. And the, the responses were genuinely eye-opening. The one comment that I got and then was repeated in a couple of messages was, thank you for asking us to do this. Thank you for being curious about this. Let's just say it's very rare in their experience. And, mm. and affirming of my sense that it was important to, to talk with them, that it was really important for me to kind of reach out and 
learn from them how to adjust the syllabus and or the expectations of the work and and so I did and I went into class today that was Tuesday typically this the next class was today first of all I received their emails I responded to everybody individually and today I went in with an assignment and I opened up the options for how to complete it uh, I offered the short-term long-term plan I offered different <laughs> dates I offered writing and I offered completing the assignment in conversation and I also offered completing the assignment and letting me know they completed it and share a few thoughts about it I think that this is the issue. I think we have to rethink and reconceptualize what constitutes work, classwork, mm -hmm. under these circumstances. And we should be doing that in conversation with our students, just mm -hmm. like we would do with anybody who were trying to carry out a collaborative effort in the context of a crisis. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't just go in and say, hey, things are normal, here you go. Things aren't normal for anyone. You know, my deepest belief is that as a teacher who wants to be in conversation with the students, the conversation has to include the conditions of their learning. And we have to accommodate our demands on them, adjust our demands on them mm. to those conditions. Mm. So this happened in the spring when we, when we uh, dispersed. I reversed my long-standing non-grading practice and I decided to give, give out the grade. And I said to my students, and I did this all in conversation. It took me a long time because I said, look, I, this is really hard for me to do because I'm not a grader. I don't think in terms of grades. I don't have the grades in my mind. But what I understood was that we were all feeling shaken and they were stressed. So I reversed my longstanding non-grading practice. I explained how hard it was for me to do this. And I also said, but I'm not going to change a thing. I'm going to continue to come every week. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And I want you to know that you have my understanding in relationship to the things you need to do. There was one student who had particularly difficult COVID circumstances who I think didn't come a lot, but every other student was there through the semester and did all the work. Yeah. We, we turned the concepts of the class into bases for conversation about what was taking place outside the door. So, you know, I, I think the, the, the most important thing that's happening in the current pandemic and political circumstances is an implicit demand on us to be deeply aware of the conditions under which our students are working we need to have a broad conversation. There's lots of thinking and learning to do here. Mm. What spoke to you about that, Marilyn? Well, I, th I think that, um, you know, as I get older and move and meet more people and gather more experiences, right, I, I sort of uh, broaden my understanding of people, of students, right, and get to know more students as people. Um, and so just, you know, I, I have been somewhat attuned to, I think, the conditions of, of students' lives and how that impacts their learning. But the pandemic accelerated and amplified that for all of us, I think, in a very abrupt and intense way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Andy and Quinn talk um, quite meaningfully about that. I mean, their conversation was, was back last October. Um, and so I think our exposure to these questions deepened. And I've had lots of conversations with faculty colleagues at USF to do the sort of cure personalis, meet their students as whole people and take care of each other as whole people, right? Um, and so I think that that's a lesson we need, even as we return to campus, to bring with us because, you know, the pandemic isn't yet over. And then even once we get beyond, hopefully, all the variants of, of COVID, um, that lesson is, is really um, something that we should carry with us and keep learning from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it that is a real a statement than a question. No, I, I, but but I, um, I think it's one that's worth highlighting. One of the silver linings of a global pandemic, of uh, social and political turmoil, 
is that it really brings to light things that have been there under the surface and have been really easy to sort of forget. It can be really easy to fall back into an approach of, well, you need to be able to figure it out, make it happen. Your responsibility is to be able to do X. And and then we sort of forget that they are real people with real challenges and unique, literally unique circumstances that can make it so that our vision of what it is that they should be doing and how they should be accomplishing and the trajectory and the path they should be on is just not appropriate. And, and insisting upon that would be counterproductive to their development. So I, I mean, I think that is one of the silver linings of, of us getting slammed in the face with Black Lives Matter and the 2020 election and the pandemic, like all at the same time, you know, it's almost like the universe is giving us a wake up call. Like, did you forget that there's, you know, a lot of complicating factors here? Yeah. Yeah, I I totally hear that, that the pandemic really aggravates, uh, not just the pandemic, all the things that Eugene just mentioned, you know, the the political context and struggles, also social inequities that already exist. But even, you know, any day, any semester, crisis or not, there are all kinds of things that could be extreme inequities that shape the conditions of learning for our students in the classroom. And most of the time, we probably don't hear about them at all. And if we do, it's always just the tip of the iceberg. Even in my first year at USF, I remember like talking to students outside of the classroom and most of what I know about what they may be struggling that semester, whether academically or, you know, could be family circumstances, could be mental health circumstances, could be some other things. I could only learn about it outside the classroom. And sometimes it would be through like some assignments, like an in-class writing reflection. But it's such a crucial thing to to attend to. Oh, I do want to share like a really brief anecdote from this past spring. So in one of my classes, students wanted to start the class with fun check-ins. And so I was like, okay, let's do that. Um, so one day uh, we just described how we feel in terms of weather. And so, you know, like most students was like uh, either like a little bit sunny or a little bit cloudy, um, windy, you know. And then there's one student who uh, said, you know, not too gravely, but kind of like, oh, it's monsoon level, level four for me. And that generally caught me by surprise because they have been so involved in the journaling exercises, in the class discussions, and in everything that we do as a class. And I would never have guessed that they were like dealing with a lot of stuff at that moment, you know. The monsoon fall was just kind of, you know, like a like a signal. I feel like that's that's every moment. We just never know what someone is going through. Can I can I offer or uh can we sort of collectively respond to what I perceive to be kind of like a, a pushback on getting mm. to know our students, right? Mm-hmm. So my perception is that in the heart of hearts of some faculty who, let's just presume well-meaning, well-intended, mm-hmm, okay? Mm-hmm. Are saying like, that, that's all fine and good, but the world is not going to caress each precious flower and in the workplace, in in life, in society, and sort of check in with each no longer student, now graduate and professional, and ask you, are you, are you feeling up to coming in and fulfilling your employment obligations today? 
And so don't we have sort of an obligation to prepare them, equip them? Aren't we doing them, sort of, in some sense, um, a disservice by cushioning the blow, um, if you will? And, and I've even heard, and this was in a slightly different context, a slightly different context, but I think the point could still translate. And that is actually one of the most compassionate things that we can do is to make them aware as quickly as possible that perhaps through no fault of your own, but if you have certain life circumstances that are a part of you and that are going to go with you continuing on into the workplace, this is going to be an ongoing struggle. And we should let you know what it feels like to get punched in the mouth with this right now so that you can make an educated choice about whether or not this is the profession for you, whether or not taking on this amount of debt is going to be something that you, you know, don't regret later on, okay? So again, to be fair, that came in from a slightly different context, but how, how, how do we respond to that? I mean, is there a kernel of truth to that? Is that sort of missing the point? What do you think? Yeah, I... I can totally understand why those questions would be raised because I heard them before in different contexts. And I would say that those kind of questions assume a certain familiar picture and a certain shared school context or professional context. Um, and then presumably not wanting to soften it for certain individuals because at the end of the day, everybody is going to have to fulfill certain obligations, right? And I think that those questions just don't take into account enough how radically unequal people's circumstances are. And I mean, unequal in the sense of extreme inequities and marginalization. And so what happens is that the multiple things that someone might have to go through does not even come on the radar of someone else, right? I mean, just think about what kind of society one has to live in that in 2020 people still have to say black lives matter you know just like that just like that saying alone that it still has to be vocalized so what does it say about the conditions of everyone every day right i feel that this comments about we need to prepare people because this is what life looks like post-graduation I know that it's often spoken in a well-meaning way, but the effect of that is that it could be quite patronizing because students who come from various contexts where they really had to struggle hard to maintain in school, to maintain their work, they are actually very fully aware of what challenges life has in store for them. And in fact, the students who struggle more, they have a much harder time to vocalize their struggles to professors. Just take an example. First generation students are a lot less likely to ask for certain resources or to not even know what resources are on campus, right? Because of uh, possibly lacks of familiarity and exposure. Uh, th that's just one example, but I think there are many examples where it's usually students who need the most support on campus that actually are the most reluctant to ask for them precisely because they are already be read in a certain way. Yeah. I, I, I must apologize. I was no, just going to say, you're always the devil's advocate pushing on things a bit, <laughs> I, I, which, I am. which is good. Yeah. I appreciate that. I mean, I was just going to say something along the lines of, 
I mean, the change the world from here motto, right? That perhaps some of the idea is that if we have this sort of more humane, cura personalis way of approaching the educational endeavor, then maybe hopefully students will go out and help transform workplaces and professions to be more that way. And, and I think there was a pretty widespread reckoning about the lack of equity and, and balance and humaneness in all kinds of professions and workplaces thrust upon us by the pandemic. So that would be my response to Eugene. Yeah, that's the other part too. <laughs> the workplace also needs to be transformed. <laughs> well, I think, I think it harkens back to the difference between, you know, individual, institutional, societal, you know, that you had sort of mentioned before. And, and there's a little bit of a chicken or the egg here. If we start to say we shouldn't be doing individual justices down here, because they're going to get swallowed up in the societal and institutional injustices. I mean, if you take that to its logical conclusion, then it's like, well, then we should do nothing, right? You can't, you can't do that. There, they, they has to start somewhere. Let's get back to the interview. So when you teach a subject such as politics, do you have ways in which you converse with students that teach to the moment? Or do you emphasize the long-term making of a crisis or a situation in the present? I should not put it as a binary. <laughs> I, I, I imagine you attend to both with students, but I wanted to ask that question. Well, as far as the question of urgency and long-term processes, my, my view is that those issues are in the text themselves, and they really just need someone to bring them out mm-hmm. and make them come alive for conversation. From my perspective, it comes to a, the question comes down to a matter of how can we enliven these questions in the materials of the class? Because mm-hmm. they're already there. And, you know, I'll focus on a particular passage in a text and I'll dwell there and I'll read it four or five times. I'll go back over it over a thousand times and I'll, because there's so many things in the single passage that are available for reflection. But as I do it, I get very passionate about it. That's how I do it. It's as if the ideas flow out of me. And they could be ideas that I agree with. They could be ideas that I disagree with. I could mm. really, you know, find the ideas despising, disgusting, offensive, but I'm still going to dwell in them mm. because I think there's work to be done, even with offensive texts. Some of the most important scholarship of our times work with offensive texts. And I'll pause at a per- certain point of the text and I'll say, okay, how does that hit you? You know, mm. does that reach mm. you? How might, you know, what might, what might it look like to, to make sense of that concept in the context of your experience. So as I'm bringing them alive, I'm trying to encourage the students to make them lively in the context of their lives. And once someone, you know, in the class enters into that, we're off. Mm -hmm. And the conversation that way is very embodied, both from the way in which you bring them alive, but also from the ways in which students bring them alive in response to your invitation and your provocation. And I think I remember distinctly, even though it's many years later now, I remember distinctly moments in in the classroom when, as you say, many hands might go up and you stay with the student and you invite others to listen really carefully to what that student is saying. And when you slow down like that, I think it's a call for everyone to be fully present in that moment with both the materials, but also with everyone around them in that room. And I value that so much. 
Another thing that you do in your teaching that I think has broader relevance than a single discipline or a single subject is the diversity of the text that you teach or the materials that you teach and based on just a recent syllabus that you share with me I would just share some of the names with listeners so you teach thinkers and artists that are from locations as globally diverse as Charles Mills, Elin Sixu, Simone de Beauvoir, Mohandas Gandhi, Franz Fanon, Malcolm X, Hamid Dabashi, Edward Said, Latifa Tekin, Orhan Pamuk, Samira Makhmabaf, and I think I've that's only probably a third or half of the names on the syllabus. And you know, my listing is actually a bit misleading because I know that your approach to teaching is not about mastery. So this is not so much a list as how much thought you put into putting these materials into conversation with each other and into conversation with students. And for me, this is really significant because uh, it is very much tied to the struggle against knowledge hierarchies and exclusions in educational institutions when, for example, a particular set of texts are considered canonical and get reproduced again and again. And you really mix a lot of materials up and put them together. So how have you engaged with students? in conversation with such a diversity of political social contexts, of cultural contexts, of traditions of thought? Well, uh, thank you for the question. You know, we live in a time where the Western canon has been provincialized, and there's a broad, widely shared recognition that there are many ways of approaching the fundamental questions of political theory and even altering those questions. There are many answers and many ways of approaching those questions beyond the terms of the the so-called Western canon. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in some ways I'm a participant in, that, in, in this era of a deep intersubjective awareness of the importance of expanding the range of our considerations to include multiple traditions and modes of thought. But I think in terms of bringing students into conversation, it's a quest, the pedagogical question that you're asking, I believe that every class is already very diverse in experiential terms, but their exposures and therefore their curiosities are broader than those conscious commitments and identities. So, you know, diverse texts enlarge the range of possible conversation that is always already available within the students. Again, they just need conversational support and guidance to bring them to the surface. So, you know, at the practical level, for all my reading assignments, I ask students to come to class having archived. And uh, what archive means is to read the text as if they were your interlocutors. You know, don't read the text to try to master them. Read them and note moments in the text where something reaches them or touches them. And what that means can be very broad. It could be something that perplexes them, perturbs them, surprises them, offends them, disgusts them, excites them. But catch that moment. Like, attend to the responses you're having to the material as you would attend to a response you might have in a conversation. And we'll take it from there. So, you know, I encourage students to come in having already conversed and brought out their responses to the text. Mm -hmm. The next step is to show them that the, that the text they're reading are also very diverse in their constitution, that they're responding to many things as well. So my point here is the class is already diverse, maybe not in terms of conscious commitment and identities, but certainly in terms of exposure and curiosities. The texts help elevate those curiosities. And if they're reading them in conversation, they come into class with some sites that have provoked them for conversation. 
I mean, I remember one student responding to Mahmoud Abbas film, uh, this student, let's say with an identity very different from the characters in the film, shared his reflection at the end, at, on the final scene, the family is walking into the unknown and this student shared their thought and just thought, you know, okay, what now? What now? About the characters in the film. What now? What a great question. I mean, it's one of the quintessential political theoretical questions of all time. Yeah. And so it was a question for him as much as it was for the characters in the film. So again, the, I, I think that this is true in any classroom, that the experiences are much more diverse than we tend to allow them to be. Mm. And so the introduction of texts from wherever they are, as long as you relax the goal of mastery, you know, I always encourage my students, get close to the text, mm. get close to both the text and your thoughts about them. Don't just... Don't just affirm yourself in the reading of the text. You know, right. Try to think about what's taking place in the text as well as your response to them. If you do this, the diversity of every text helps foreground and consider the already existing diversity in the class. And then with it, it opens up horizons for consideration that none of us expected. Like they, you, you, you pause and you dwell with the student who says, what now? And they say, okay, well, what now? And then we go there. Maybe with the difficulty of even asking that question. Or why is that the question? Or what other questions? Or what if that is the question? What's in your thoughts and imaginations about what is now? What is next? I hope that addresses your question of diversity. <laughs> more than, more than okay. addresses my question. Um, because what you just said really broaden or even shift our perspective on what is typically considered to be diversity in the classroom or diversity of students because I think that too often it goes by either visible identifiers or you know uh, identifications that are nameable on papers right or, or at least are conscious and the way that you just said about the diversity of exposure that they are unconscious there are experiences in them that maybe the students themselves didn't even know until that came out in a moment in conversation with others and i also really appreciate what you said about not wanting students to simply affirm themselves in these encounters with texts and with differences and i think that's why you really emphasize the perplexity in your archiving assignment or your archiving exercise because if if students are supposed to share what perplexes them it's much less likely that they will bring up something that simply affirms their thoughts or preconceptions when one of the terms that really intrigued me in your conversation was how andy talked about archiving as kind of the term for what he was asking students to do with texts, right? Mm -hmm. So if they were assigned to watch a film or read an article or a book or a piece of theory, they were supposed to do archiving and then come back to class. Tell me more about what's entailed in that term archiving. I found it really interesting and I want to hear more. Yeah, I also find that exercise very intriguing as well. So as far as I understand it, I think it's related to the second dimension of teaching learning as conversation. So we've talked about conversation in terms of conversation among the students, conversation between teacher and students. And I think this is about conversation with the materials. So treating the text or the materials as the interlocutors. And 
I think archiving entails all sorts of responses that one has when one goes through the materials. So that could be, you know, surprise, intrigue, you know, being drawn to, or, you know, it could be like a negative kind of reaction too. And I think the exercise of archiving is meant for students to be not just processing the materials, but also paying attention to what happens to you as you are in conversation with the text, right? And again, it's meant to broaden the range of consideration. So it's, it's not oriented toward mastery. And I think that's where the emphasis on perplexity really comes in. And I did ask Andy about this exercise because I asked students to uh, keep a journal of their responses before the class. And Andy was actually emphatic about how this is not journaling. This is archiving. And the point that he highlighted in that conversation with me was that he actually did not want students to prepare so much what they're going to share in the class. He's interested in sort of unprepared thoughts unfolding in the space together. And I think the emphasis there is one, the togetherness, right? Let's share what we have and let's see how we engage with each other. We as in teachers, but also among students themselves. And the other part is leaving that space of wonder and receptivity to each other's thought and perplexity. So that struck an impression with me because I haven't really thought of it that way, you know, because I, I, I did want students to be prepared for the class and coming to class having thought about the materials. So, yeah. I have to just chime in that notion of, of not being over-prepared, you know, scripting what you have to say and looking for the right answer, but kind of the, the in-the-moment discovery reminds me of Hannah Arendt's book, The Human Condition, philosopher, where she's talking about the ancient Greeks and their values, and there's this notion of natality, of like almost giving birth to yourself in the space of the polis, of the public sphere. And as I understand it, it's this idea of, you know, we sort of become fully who we are in that interchange, right? In those encounters with other equals, with other interlocutors, the, the students, the teacher, and the authors, the material. So I find that both risky and also very exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the notion of risk is very important in the space of learning. And that's why that's connected to perplexity. And I think that's why it's so important for him to really, really convey to students a, a non-graded relationship or a non-graded space, because uh, students or anyone would be less likely to take risks, less likely to share what confuses them if people are so conscious of possibly being graded on that. And the point about perplexity is also that the space is meant to be a space of encountering differences, right? So the differences can come from the text, the differences can come from their classmates. And so what was brilliant about emphasizing perplexity for me is that it's less likely to just look for places that would agree with you or affirm what you already think. I think that was what was so crucial about the emphasis on on perplexity. Yeah, I, I think that's that's true. And it's one of the things that makes it so brilliant, I think, to ask the students to share the parts that perplex them, as opposed to, do you understand? Or what don't you understand? Or what do you think? 
it is multi-layered as far as I can tell. First, it is normalizing the notion that you should be perplexed when you read these texts. It isn't something that is somehow deficient in your learning. And when I ask you, do you have any questions, it's not a test to see whether you are keeping up with everyone else, as you should, or if you're somehow deficient in your understanding. As I think about this right now, I, I often just sort of default to the exact opposite. You know, I'll be like, oh, tell me what you understand, and then I'll clarify what pieces you don't. But I am wondering one other thing. I'm thinking of like perplexity as being almost like a, a, a dissonance, right? Like something doesn't quite fit into my existing understanding of whatever the subject matter is. Now, is that just a tool to help the students ultimately ask the right questions? Or is the dissonance itself what our goal is, you know? Uh, It's kind of like with some forms of music, classical music especially, dissonance has a place, but it's to then ultimately resolve itself into harmony. But it almost sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, Andy is inviting them to share the things that cause dissonance and then saying, huh, and I'm not going to grade you, so there's no resolution, and let's move on to the next thing. And I almost feel like students would push back on that and say, okay, so here's what perplexes me. Now, professor, please explain to me how this actually does make sense in the universe. Why Mm -hmm. is it perplexing me? Is that going to be happening, do you think? So, yeah, I the the way that you pose the question, I think is precisely gets to the space of open-ended mutual learning that happens in the classroom. So it's definitely not meant to necessarily gear toward resolution. And and I think that's the other aspect about asking people to archive what perplexes them, right? It's because if we ask people what they understand, that lends itself more to certainty, if not scriptedness, as Marilyn said before, right? But if something perplexes us, we don't know why or how it perplexes us. So it, it lends itself much more the space of exploration. And it's also related to thinking about how to engage students in a way that not only encourages discomfort, dissonance, but also critical thinking, which usually entails examining our assumptions and preconceptions, which usually entails not just learning, but also unlearning. Right. And the process of unlearning is so slow, you know, like I don't think we can just go go to the classroom and say, okay, let's unlearn our assumptions. It really takes a lot of invitation to share, to tease out what we might implicitly expect. And, And when we don't find that, then that can potentially, you know, surprise us or confuses us. want to share maybe an example or an experimentation or you know something that comes to your mind when you hear co-creating teaching and learning with students sure i'd be happy to you know my favorite one it happened just last year i was scheduled to teach introduction to political theory and i sat down as i do every year in august to put together a course description and reading list and i had this realization For every name I put down on the list, another name didn't make the page. For every name that made the page, another name didn't make the page. And I said, you know, if there's a first lesson in political theory, this has to be it. For every reading that makes a page, there are voices, perspectives that don't make the page. And I decided to thematize that as the way of beginning the class. 
Now, this is consistent with another dimension of my teaching. You know, with the practice of conversation and archiving, I frequently have students come into class and we'll start with their archives. But sometimes I come in with, a, with what I think of as a provocation made possible by the material. For example, uh, when I've taught courses in the past about the relationship between secularity and relationship between religion and institutional life, I've come into class with a, a big book and I've stood in front of the class and I've said, would anybody mind if I started class with a prayer? I didn't know you've done this. <laughs> that was, I did that a long time ago, but it comes, it flashes forth when I think about my pedagogy, what I try to do. I try to find the provocation in the material and start a class, start a conversation that way. I've gone into class problematizing why we're reading these texts. Mm -hmm. You know, at a time when the, when the canon is being challenged, why are you reading Plato? Why are you reading Aristotle? Why are you reading Machiavelli? Why are you reading Hobbes, Locke? Where are the other voices? Why the gendered emphases. And so I've tried to find a way to problematize that. In the past, the one way I did was I, I literally made it an ex explicit part of the conversation. I said, as we read these texts, we're going to ask, should we be reading these texts? <laughs> and for people who didn't believe me, I had to demonstrate my seriousness. One summer, after talking about Aristotle on slavery and gender and citizenship, I said, well, should we be reading this text? And the question didn't reach them. So I, I said, look, Tell me why I shouldn't rip the pages out of the book, you know, and I still didn't work. So I tore the pages of Aristotle's selection out of the reader of political thought. I said, now tell me why I shouldn't have done that or should have done that. And then we had this great conversation. Mm -hmm. I held Machiavelli over the garbage can. I said, should, should we be reading Machiavelli? Should I release the text into the pail? Right? Could, could we, I'm serious about these questions, and these are the provocations of some of the questions. Well, this last last year when I was teaching intro to political theory, I had this. I had the realization that for every name I put on the page, other names weren't making on the page, and I decided to take that into the class. My hope was to invite them into the process of constructing a reading list. Mm. And what we decided to do was, uh, I invited them all to go back and first we talked about what could we do here. And one of the ideas that came up was people should go home and and look at political theory syllabuses on the internet, look at political theory books, and think about what usually happens in a class, what names are in, what names are out, and mm. you know, and don't read all the text, but breeze through them, take a look at them, think about what's there, what's not there, the other texts you want to add, and everybody send me a list in five days with ten readings or texts, and I told them that I've assigned novels, films, and poetry, and so they did that. Uh, what happened, I could not have anticipated, and again, it's one of these amazing things that can happen if you're genuinely interested in seeing where a conversation can go. So I asked them to send me the list of 10 names and also rank their top three, the ones that they most wanted to read. And the next day in class, I came in with these two lists. I handed out the first list, and I said, let's talk about what you see here. And that list had over 80 different possible selections. Mm. Some were repeated. You know, Plato was there several times. Some of the classic names you would expect. But I handed out the list, and I said, okay, what are your impressions? What's in your understanding of what you see in the list? And we had, first of all, we had a great conversation about what people saw. The first observation turned out to be one of the more consequential ones. Someone says, wow, I see all these, all these things I never thought of, I never imagined to put on. I said, well, give me an example. Someone said, for example, I see Sojourner Truth. Oh, I said, say more. Well, you know. I just never expected this. I didn't think of that text as a political theory text, or I never thought of that. And then others would comment that as well. And then we had a conversation about whether we should read texts that you hadn't thought of or texts that you have thought of. Mm. You know, there are people who are saying, this is introduction to political theory. It's a college course. I should, do, I should be doing stuff that I haven't thought of. It should be diversity, you know, in that sense mm. before. Let's read the texts that are not part of my familiar horizon. And then others made a case who, who, who may have brought texts in with that 
thought guiding them, said, you know, come to think of it, actually, I think we should read the text we think we're familiar with. And we had a great conversation about why one would want to do one or the other. Mm. Anyway, that, I tried to keep that short because I said, I want to show you what happened when, we, when you ranked them. They ranked your top three. So I handed out the second list mm. of only the top three ranked. Mm. And then I said, what do you see here? And the person who had raised their hand and offered the first comment raised their hand again. And they said, Sojourner Truth is no longer on the list. And it was really a kind of powerful moment in the class because mm-hmm. they came to experience and feel the thing that I was saying on the first day of class, which was for every name I put on, other names didn't make it. And the lesson was, was had, so to speak. But what happened that first day at the end of the class was one of the most important moments in my teaching career because we had to decide what, you know, some people were getting impatient. You know, let's, can we do some work? Can, we get, can give us, can tell us something to read, you know? I mean, not that they didn't enjoy the first one and they weren't fascinated, but there was a sense among some students, you know, give us something to read. And, and we came to a point, so what are we, okay, where should we start? What should we read? And as if the whole class understood this, came to the same thought at the same time, we realized that where we should start the reading for the semester was with the text that didn't make the cut. And so our first reading for the class was Sojourner Truths. You know, what was great about it is that we all felt the significance of starting a class by reading a text that didn't make the list of readings. It was a beautiful uh, moment. Yeah. You know, it's, it's one thing to, let's say, on the first day of class to share the syllabus and say, you know, for every name that you see, there are hundreds, thousands of names that you don't see and make a point of highlighting that for students. I think that's still in, that's an important point, but that's yes. still somehow in the abstract, right? right? So even though this process might take two days or even three days, I think that experience is going to stay with students because they are part of composing that list. They are part of deciding who and what voices would not make the cut. And so they feel it more, and they also feel themselves responsible for it more yes. from the moment of seeing something that is part of to not yeah. being a part of. Yeah. So when the story that Andy tells about how he invited his students to list, there are two lists involved. One of them is to come up with sort of like a longer list of the things that would maybe be more typically expected. And then a top three where it's like, well, for sure, these are the ones that I think we would definitely hit. And then using those two lists to then invite the students to observe, well, what made it onto each one of those lists and why? And which one of these lists is the quote unquote right one for us to be using? And so then from there, I guess to make a long story short, the students then decided with the professor collectively, well, which text should we start with? And they agreed to start with Sojourner Truth, right? So like that's such a cool moment that he had that was, I guess, illustrating how neat it can be when the students have some ownership over over the material that they're going to be discussing and learning about, you know, when they have this sort of shared responsibility of the curriculum. Now, that's what I pulled out of it. But um, I'd love to hear some more of your thoughts about, is that something that can and should be replicated in, you know, in other circumstances where a curriculum is more set? Um, is that something that we should be striving for, i.e. trying to get the students' sense of ownership and, and investment in what they're mm-hmm. learning? Or is mm-hmm. there something even beyond that that he was sort of touching on? 
Yeah. So this was in the context of talking about different examples or experiments of what co-learning could look like. And so he shared this story, and there are other stories. And I think the stories comes from the fact that, and this is a sense that I think you know any faculty member could share, is that when you compose a syllabus, it's just so hard because there's so many things that can come into it, and there are these inevitable cuts because there's only so much that can go into one semester. So this experience comes out of that context, and I think it's also kind of loaded when. There are already certain canonized texts in a particular discipline, right? So this is a course on intro to political theory, but one can think of I don't know intro to comparative law or intro to you name it. And the invitation for students to each imagine their own syllabus and see to what extent that overlap or not with a more typical expectations. I think that also questions. What we take for granted as texts that would count as a discipline, and I think it really opens up what counts as knowledge in that particular discipline or context for us. So I think that was what was powerful, and and also for the students to experience that responsibility of making the class together, right, collectively. Yeah, I mean, also it just seems to me like psychologically. Um, <laughs> An excitement that's going to come when the class has sort of collectively decided, like, yeah, we're going to we're going to read this. I know it's comparative law. We're going to read *To Kill a Mockingbird*. That's going to be our first text, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, and and the other part that I think uh, this goes back to students being the interlocutors, right? So, so students come in the classroom already with not just experiences and interests and curiosities, but also with all kinds of sources of knowledges. Right, and to invite that into the classroom, uh, one of the ways in which uh, Andy would characterize the pedagogical approach is not just that it's thoroughly conversational, but also that it's meant to be reciprocally challenging. So challenging for the students, but also challenging for the teacher. And th there's one part where he say, you know, I'll meet you where you are, and you'll meet me where I am. So I mean, typically we would say we'll meet students where they are, right? Because we understand that there are many different starting points. But we don't, as often say, we'll meet them where we are to understand that we also come from particular locations. We also come with our own limits, and therefore mm -hmm. we are also eager to be challenged by students also. Yeah. So I think that's the other aspect of constantly inviting students in the co-learning process. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I just want to share one quick story. My most amazing, fulfilling teaching experience ever of my whole career was in fall of 2013. I was teaching rhetoric of social movements, and the Critical Diversity Studies Forum that year was reimagining the dream. Such a powerful event. I assigned my students to attend the event. And the keynote speaker was Jose Antonio Vargas, America's most famous undocumented person. And the next class, we just talked about it and everyone was like so charged up. And then I looked at the syllabus that we were, you know, one month into completing. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't have anything at all on here about immigration and dreamers and migrant rights. And it's a class on social movements. What am I doing? And I basically had this moment and had a really fruitful conversation with a colleague that gave me the courage to walk into class one day, a week later, and say, 
do you guys want to just completely rewrite the rest of the syllabus together? And I said, I mean, I, I chose all the rest of this stuff, and I think it's valuable, good stuff. But there's all this other stuff out there, too, and all these topics and these movements. And my interests shouldn't necessarily lead the class. What do you want to study? Right? And they looked at me, and they were like, we can do that? We can cancel the syllabus and rewrite it together, right? And it was this moment of like, whoa, do we have permission? And so, you know, we spent a day or two figuring out, do we want to do that? And what would it look like? And then they ended up teaching class for a whole class, right? And picking readings and assigning it. And it was like more than any other semester I've taught any class this real magical shared endeavor really meeting each other where we were that I'll, I'll never forget. I mean, that sounds like a really wonderful experience and it entails risk-taking for students and risk-taking for the teacher, right? Yeah. And it's kind of unforgettable for everyone. It is um, a risk, as you said, for all people involved. You know, for each of those stories, like the one that Marilyn shared, there have been times where I felt like, you know, I've gone home and then I've sort of been like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then there have been other times where I'm like, yeah, I might get fired. That, that did not <laughs> land very well. And the students are going to let me know. So it, 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 there's a risk mm -hmm. for sure. But, you know, I, I guess uh, I don't want to be in a situation where we're more concerned about making sure to take the safe route than we are to sort of, you know, stretch the possibilities of the learning experience for our students. That, that would be too bad. Um, and it's not, it's not what we want to model for our students either. There is already a tendency to stick to what has worked for them thus far. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a little bit disingenuous, I suppose, for us to insist that they need to expand their horizons and approach learning a different way if we're going to insist upon sticking to teaching in this sort of safe and tried and true way for what that's worth. Um, I don't know if I'll be able to find it, but I am looking for, it was just a gem of a quote in some course evaluations that I received, and I, I can't find it at the moment, but it was something to the effect of, this is the worst thing I've ever had a professor make us do in class. Like, oh no. with as much money as we are spending, there should be none of this BS about like, well, let's see what we're interested in and what does you think? There is an answer. Tell us the answer so we can get on with our day. It was something to that effect. And that's one of the risks that we take, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, that doesn't mean that what you were going for was necessarily wrong. What that means is that we always need to work on how we're going to let them know what we're doing, get the buy-in and understanding. No matter what you're trying to do, no matter how brilliant it is, if you're not able to then communicate you know, what mm -hmm. happened in that process, it's going to be lost, right? Well, that's one of the lessons I take away from the conversation with Andy is being very intentional and open and explicit with the students, kind of explaining the process, right, and unpacking the norms that usually go unspoken, right, or the, the ways that we typically do school or expect to do school mm -hmm. or what have you. Or in the process of maybe, you know, not doing everything that students want or ask for, but kind of explaining why, mm -hmm. right? And showing your cards, basically, right? Like pu pulling the curtain back, showing the, the Wizard of Oz behind, and, you know, how you're doing what you're doing and why, which I think, again, takes courage, but I think is ultimately really fulfilling and important. Yeah, absolutely. It takes courage and also takes practice, because even with the intention to do that, 
and to pull back the curtain. Sometimes pulling back the curtain and showing will lead to sort of like wrinkled brows and like, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? I, I, I bring that up just because I think that we need to have some self-compassion as teachers too. Like again, to try to model what we're asking our students to do. When they go out on a limb, they try a different way of learning something or embracing the learning process. And it translates into not doing well on the test or in the course. What do you do then, right? Does that mean you like, ah, well, throw that out? Uh, maybe not, right? Maybe that means like, okay, well, maybe the way I approached it wasn't entirely right. And so that constant grappling with the teaching and learning process is something that I really love about it, as hard as it can be sometimes. Let's go back to Quen's conversation with Andy. You know, this brings back a lot of fond memories of my own experience at Vassar and studying with you and many other teachers. And for me, you and other teachers also really change the way I think about learning, change the way I think about teaching. And so I was wondering, were there moments in your long career of teaching so far and maybe in your learning experience as a student that those realizations also occurred to you, that someone or some moments made you feel like, oh, I didn't realize that teaching could be like this. I didn't realize that learning could take this form. There were two, two important I think, pedagogical moments in my life that I had with my first two advisors, mm. uh, my undergraduate and then the person I worked with at, when I did my master's at the University of Delaware. The first was Rick Matthews at Lafayette College and then David Ingersoll at the University of Delaware. I had these two moments of teaching lesson that I received from them. When I was a student of uh, Matthews, he used what was at the time called the Socratic method. Mm. Come in and ask really challenging questions about the text. Mm. Put a little fear in my body initially. <laughs> And uh, I was always nervous to answer questions. But I, as, as I watched the conversation unfold in the class, he was very supportive. And often he would say something like, the student would respond with a thought about the text. And he'd say something, oh, that's interesting. I never thought of that. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought of that. And I was like, wow, a professor standing up there saying he never thought of something. And so I developed a close relationship with both Rick and David over the years. But at the time, he was a kind of fear-imposing <laughs> instructor in the front of the room trying to get me to think and say something intelligent when my mind was filled with confusion and the confusions that a student has in their first encounter with a subject matter. But I ended up being his teaching assistant in my senior year, his research assistant, excuse me. Well, and I remember asking one day, I said, look, I got to ask you this question because I was sitting in this class and now and then you'd say to someone, you know, they'd offer an interpretation of a really difficult passage and you go, I never thought of that. And I said, is that, was that true? Like, did you really never think of that? And he turned to me and he said very slowly and patiently, he said, always a student, Andrew, never only a teacher. That's a beautiful saying. Is this a teacher who you said would come into the classroom and then just <laughs> lean back and ask, maybe not leaning back, but just ask questions? <laughs> no, that was, that was a different one at, at Lafayette as well. Yeah. Really provoked, provoked us. And that was in my, that was also, I think that was probably the same semester. <laughs> the semester in fear of being challenged to be brought into creative and fruitful conversation. And the other class, yeah, there was a professor who would walk in and he'd sign a whole book and we'd walk in and he'd come in his, he'd sit down on the table in front, lean back and, and look at us and go, questions. <laughs> the other story I want to tell is about uh, David Ingersoll, the late David Ingersoll. I remember an experience I had where I had dropped off a small batch of exams and he read them. And then the next time I came out to deliver the next batch of exams, I asked him if there's anything more I could do. And he said to me, get closer 
to them, Andrew. And that's kind of all he said. And what he meant was, you know, think with them closer. You know, attend closer to what their meanings are, what they're trying to say. Mm. Listen a little bit more to, the, to what they're trying to convey in their writing. Get closer. Mm. Think closer with your students. Try to attend to what's in their understandings as you're evaluating their work. That was a really important moment for me, to use the language of get closer. Mm. Yeah, and in a way, without planning, I think that comes full circle because I think that's part of the heart of your approach <laughs> is really listening so closely and getting closer to what students as your interlocutors say. Um, thank you so much for spending time and sharing with us so generously today. I have always seen you as an extremely attentive listener and today you just share with us so much. So um, thank you for all those uh, provocations, all those insights. So thank you so much, Andy. Well, thank you for welcoming me into your conversation and I look forward to more conversations. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Gwen, thank you so much for being here, for taking the time to share your conversation with Andy, with us. It was really a pleasure. Thank you so much, Eugene and Marilyn, for hosting this conversation, for being so open to the idea, for experimenting, for giving me an opportunity to continue this conversation on pedagogy with Andy, who I just always have so much to learn from. Thanks so much. And thanks to you, our listeners. Hope you join us again soon on CTE Podcast. I'm Marilyn Delore. And I'm Eugene Kim. This episode was produced by the Center for Teaching Excellence at the University of San Francisco. The CTE is co-directed by Marilyn Delore and Eugene Kim. Our program assistant is Nisha Jaster. Sound editing was done by our student assistant, Sophie Fry. <laughs>